Jesse Lingard dodged a defender in midfield and the pitch opened up in front of him. The crowd started screaming as he ran down the wing and found himself with space outside the box. He looked up for support and streaked the ball across the face of the goal. The keeper was rooted to the spot as a backtracking defender slid in to get a touch, but the pass was too quick and too precise. And sprinting in from midfield, cutting toward the far post, unmarked, foot outstretched, about to hit a perfect volley into the back of the net to seal the Champions League final for Manchester United was me. The keeper dove but never had a chance and I watched as the net bulged and the crowd leapt to their feet in celebration. It was the 89th minute and there was no way Real Madrid could come back now. I ran toward the corner flag, arms outstretched, breathing in the roar of the crowd, my teammates leaping behind me. It made my afternoon. I looked to my partner who was reading on the couch. I won, I told her. Oh, that's good, babe. It was then I realized that I wanted my partner to be proud of me for winning a video game. I'm Brian Fabry Dorson, and this is Character Creator a monthly podcast about video game characters and the people who create them. This month, origin story. So, I'm sitting in a chair in front of the TV, looking back at my partner, desperately waiting for some kind of validation for putting a digital ball in the back of a digital net. Why on earth am I doing this? It was this little question that started me down a road that ultimately led me all the way here to creating this podcast. Because it turns out that little question isn't so little. Actually, it's really, really big. And there are many different ways to answer it, but there are also many different people asking it. And they all have answers of their own. And that ultimately is the premise of this podcast. Why do we care so much about video games? In upcoming episodes, we'll hear stories from all over the gaming community. I'll talk with gamers and developers and journalists. I'll talk with people who've written books about video games. I'll talk with people who never play video games at all. But before I do any of that, before I jump into this massive and complicated and fascinating world of gaming, I want to take this first episode to tell you how I got here to take you down the same path that led me to this microphone, to introduce myself. That's me, right there. The one in front of the TV holding a controller and smiling like an idiot. Yeah, you remember. So, why do I want my partner to be proud of me for doing well in FIFA? The obvious answer might be that I've put a lot of time into this game. You know, it requires a little bit of skill, it makes sense that I'd want some kind of acknowledgement for that, right? Or is there more to it than that? First of all, let's take a look at those first two claims I've just made, that I've put a lot of time into the game, and that it requires skill, because I can sense some of you scoffing already. And in one sense, you'd be right to. I'm sitting on a couch twiddling my thumbs. What's the big deal? But think about it this way. If we can consider playing video games a skill, and I think we can for reasons that I'll talk about in a minute, then this is a skill that I've cultivated over a long period of time. Since I was a kid, really. I've been playing video games almost as long as I've been reading. And I'm not alone in that, either. The percentage of school-aged children who play video games is difficult to determine, and the numbers can vary from pole to pole. But the lowest percentage I've seen is 91%. The highest I've seen is 97%. 97! Basically, everyone under 18 is playing some kind of video game. And although they disagree slightly on percentages, each study I've seen from the last 10 years agrees on one thing. That percentage is going up. Okay, so I've been playing video games for a long time, so what? 
Right, I've been reading books for a long time too, and I don't need anyone to compliment me on how well I read Moby Dick, right? Well, I'm an English major, so that might not be true, but you take my point. We don't say things like, she's really good at watching movies, or you should have seen them read that book. Because watching movies and reading books aren't generally considered skills, you know, more just things we do. What's different about video games? Well, turns out, a lot. People have been studying the effects of video games on the human brain for decades. You've probably seen some of these studies in the news. Typically, the studies that get the most media attention sound a bit like this. The connection between game violence and aggression is as strong as the medical association between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. Let's take a look at this link between these recent teen killers and video games. Violent video games have encouraged the killing of innocent people for sport. That these are not harmless toys. Columbine shooter, Virginia Tech shooter, the Arizona shooter, the Norway shooter, the Aurora shooter, the Newtown shooter. An eight-year-old boy had watched Grand Theft Auto and shot a 90-year-old woman. These young kids want to dress like the actors they see in TV or what they see in these video games, and they arm themselves with these rifles and guns, and they go out and they commit these, these killings. All of these folks were addicted to violent video games. This is no different than any other drug. Isn't fantasizing about killing people as a way to get your kicks really the filthiest form of pornography? These video games, to me, are, are murder simulators. Okay, you get the idea. But it's not just news media. One article on Psychology Today titled This is Your Child's Brain on Video Games has an image of a nuclear explosion. And while maybe a bit overblown, pun intended, the link between violent video games and aggression, I think, is worth considering. But it's not the only link being made between gaming and brain function. I'd love to dedicate an entire future episode to the competing statistics on the effects of video games and the human brain, but for this episode, I just want to briefly mention a few of the studies that get less mainstream attention. I looked into this, and right away I found Daphne Bavlier, a professor at the University of Geneva who focuses her research on this exact question. What is the impact of video games on the brain? Now, video games, Bavlier says, are like food. We can't say that video games are, as a whole, good or bad. It depends on what games we're talking about. But some games, even the violent ones, can have positive effects on brain function. Here's an edited excerpt of a TED talk that Bavlier gave in 2012. I'm not going to tell you that playing video games days in and days out is actually good for your health. It's not. But I'm going to argue that in reasonable doses, actually the very game I showed you at the beginning, those action-packed shooter games, have quite powerful effects and positive effects on many different aspects of our behavior. For example, there's a myth, she says, that too much screen time makes your eyesight worse. Well, she tested this. The issue is what happens with these guys that actually indulge into playing video games like five hours per week, 10 hours per week, 15 hours per week. By that statement, their vision should be really bad, right? Guess what? Their vision is really, really good. It's better than those that don't play. And it's better in two different ways. The first way is that they're actually able to resolve small detail in the context of clutter. The other way that they are better is actually being able to resolve um, different levels of gray. Imagine you're driving in the fog, she says. Being able to differentiate between different shades of gray could be the difference between getting into an accident and avoiding an accident. So we're actually leveraging that work to develop games for patients with low vision and to have an impact on retraining their brain to see better. Another saying that I'm sure you have all heard around, video games lead to attention problem and greater distractibility. Well, it turns out Bavlier's team knows how to test for this, too. Bavlier recreates one of their experiments with the audience. So, I'm going to ask you to participate, so you're going to have to actually play the game with me. At this point, Bavlier puts a bunch of different words on screen, and all of the words are written in different colors. The job of the audience is to shout out the color of the word. Orange, good. Green. It sounds simple, but soon the word orange appears in a green font, or the word green appears in a red font, and it becomes a little confusing. It gets harder and harder. 
You got my point, right? You're getting better, but it's hard. Why is it hard? Because I introduced a conflict between the word itself and its color. How good your attention is determines actually how fast you resolve that conflict. What we can show is that when you do this kind of task with people that play a lot of action games, they actually resolve the conflict faster. Another aspect of attention that is heightened in gamers who play first-person shooters is the ability to track objects. This is something we use all the time. When you're driving, you're tracking, keeping track of the cars around you. You're also keeping track of the pedestrian, the running dog, and that's how you can actually be safe driving. So your typical normal young adult can have a span of about three or four objects of attention. Your action video game player has a span of about six to seven objects of attention. So in the same way that we actually see the effects of video games on people's behavior, we can use brain imaging and look at the impact of video game on the brain. And we do find many changes, but the main changes are actually to the brain networks that control attention. So one part is the parietal cortex, which is very well known to control the orientation of attention. The other one is the frontal lobe, which controls how we sustain attention. And another one is the anterior cingulate, which controls how we allocate and regulate attention and resolve conflict. Now, when we do brain imaging, we find that all three of these networks are actually much more efficient in people that play action games. So there are a few examples of the way that action games can have positive benefits on the brain. Here's another one. You may have heard how virtual reality and digital simulations have been used to train surgeons for years now, but it turns out many surgeons have a head start before they even pick up a digital scalpel. Remember the game Half-Life? It came out in 1998 and quickly became one of the most successful single-player first-person shooters ever. But wait till you hear this. A 2009 study found that surgeons who played Half-Life for five weeks performed better in surgical training simulators than those who didn't. That's right, playing an unrelated, violent shooter improved their performance in surgical training. Ironic, yes, but really, really interesting. And these kinds of studies are all over the place. Certain video games can have a noticeable impact on practical, real-world skills. And I don't just mean training simulators. Many of the games we play every day are having real, practical benefits. Some games have benefits that go far beyond skill development. Now, the positive effects of video games can sound a little overblown, too, sometimes. One study I found claims that video games can help with cancer treatment in children. I know, I was skeptical, too, but listen to this. Mark Griffiths, the professor who conducted the study, wrote, quote, Video games can provide cognitive distraction for children during chemotherapy for cancer and treatment for sickle cell disease. All these studies reported that distracted patients had less nausea and lower systolic blood pressure than controls, end quote. For cancer and sickle cell patients who often have to take extra medication to treat nausea and regulate blood pressure, that's really big. Not all studies claim that video games benefit cancer treatment, but I was surprised to hear what else they benefit. A 2011 study out of Michigan State University found that children who play video games tend to be more creative than children who don't. Another study from last year found that just like reading books, some video games help to develop empathy and a better understanding of others. Similarly, online multiplayer games have been shown in many cases to develop social skills and self-confidence. A quick Google search will turn up hundreds, probably thousands of articles about the negative effects of gaming. From addiction to aggression to school shootings, video games get blamed for a lot of bad things in the world. And while it would make me happy to say that all of that is complete nonsense, that's hard to do quite so easily. Good food, bad food, right? Like I said, that conversation deserves a whole episode and this isn't it. But what I want you to take away here is that the story that video games nuke your brain is not the only story. Video games can be, and have been, a positive influence in the lives of people all over the world, myself included. Which leads me to the final but most complicated answer to my initial question. 
When I look to my partner on the couch for validation, is there more to it than time and skill? Is there something bigger? Let me tell you up front. Yeah, there is. This podcast is called Character Creator. So let's talk about character creators. Character creators are my favorite part of video games. Before I even start playing the game, I sculpt and clothe my digital self with the utmost seriousness. This process, if I let it, can take more than an hour. In the early days of avatar creation, due to limited graphic capacity, the user's control over a character's aesthetics was small. However, almost as compensation, users were sometimes given complete control over a character's physical capabilities. Essentially, after having to choose from a small number of stock faces, you could go on to make a 7-foot hulk whose hitting, fielding, and running attributes were all 100 out of 100. My friend Gene used to do this. He once made a player as tall, thin, and strong as the game would allow. He must have triggered some glitch in the game because every time he swung the bat, he hit a home run and zipped around the bases at an inhuman speed, and Gene laughed every time. I never did this. My character, even then, was always six foot three, just like me, and I was careful to make him realistic, if very good, on the field. I wanted to be good, but I wanted to have to earn it, too. I wanted it to feel real. Of course, character creators have gotten much more sophisticated over the last 20 years. Now, it's common to be in control of the bridge of your character's nose, the freckles on their cheeks, or the angle of their jaw. For obsessives like me, it's a new golden age of gaming. Nowadays, assuming players want some semblance of realism, physical skills and attributes are usually assigned based on body type and size, as well as your character's role or race in the case of sci-fi or fantasy games, or position on the field in the case of sports games. These traits then grow with experience or training. In some sports games, they can even peak and then diminish over the course of a career. My game of choice, as you know by now, is FIFA. After a decade of video game sobriety, I finally caved, ordered a PlayStation 4, and bought the newest installment of EA Sports' long-running soccer series. I popped in the disc, loaded career mode, and created myself. I should probably pause here to tell you that I used to play sports. In real life, I mean, not just in video games. And I used to be good. When I was a kid, I played everything. Baseball, soccer, basketball, tennis, even hockey. The only reason I didn't play football is that my town didn't have a league. By the time I got to high school, it was only baseball, but I was good enough to play varsity shortstop in my freshman year. All this to say, Sports were a big part of my life for a long time. Not only did I play them, I knew everything about them, every player on every team in every league of every sport. I collected trading cards. I could tell you all of Lenny Dykstra's batting averages from 1986 to 1996. But then, one day, I stopped. In my sophomore year, baseball stopped being fun. It was some combination of daily after-school practice and the macho locker room culture that always put me off. I went to practice one afternoon without my gear and told the coach I wanted to quit. My mother cried when I told her. Instead, I started taking theater classes. I started making art again. I started listening to Bell and Sebastian. At this point, my transformation from competitive athlete to delicate hipster is so complete that most of my friends don't know that I've ever even held a baseball, let alone that I struck out every batter I faced in a game against the New Hope Solbury Little League Braves in 1997. That part of me has been covered up by my Warby Parker glasses, my skinny jeans, and the heavy breathing induced by a flight of stairs. But that part of me is still there. A few years ago, I started watching soccer. I hadn't watched sports regularly in more than a decade, but something about soccer became gripping to me. Unlike American sports, it's simple. Get the ball in the net, don't use your hands. Any rules are mostly to keep players safe. It's free-flowing, unlike baseball or football. 
It's also brief, because the clock never stops, matches are less than two hours. There's a beauty to it. Players have to be intellectually and physically creative at the same time. It requires individual creativity, but also collaborative creativity. It's a lot like improv theater in that way. There are very few set plays, so every play is actually being invented and executed in the moment by an 11-part organism. I've watched a lot of sports in my life, and for my money, soccer players might just be the most all-around athletic people in the world. I am not one of those people. I wanted to start playing myself, maybe get back into shape, but I can't run for very long anymore without wanting to throw up, so instead, I did the easy thing, and I bought a PlayStation 4 and FIFA 17. Like most character creation engines these days, FIFA's is complex. I tried, like I always do, to make the face look roughly like my own. Thin nose, long jaw, high set eyes. I made the character my height, I gave him my name. But then, at this point, I deviated. I gave him a beard, and I made him 180 pounds. I can't grow a beard. No one in my family can, and this is probably why I've always wanted one. I also cannot weigh 180 pounds. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried eating, I've tried lifting. My body will not put on weight. And now, I want to say here that I realize that of all the physical problems in the world, this one ranks pretty low. But even so, it's still not something I'm happy about. My body has been a source of frustration and disappointment and even shame for most of my life. Remember in the film Crazy Stupid Love when Emma Stone tells Ryan Gosling that he looks like he's been photoshopped? Fuck! Seriously? It's like you're photoshopped! I look like the guy who did the photoshopping. I always have. In FIFA, I photoshop myself. I give myself the body I thought I wanted in high school. I give myself the body I still want now. I did some research to see what other people do with character creators. It turns out this kind of thing isn't uncommon. Many gamers make idealized versions of themselves when given the chance. For me, I don't think it's a coincidence that my avatar body is a hyper-masculinized one. Masculinity is a complex word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So the best I can do is tell you what it meant to me growing up. Playing, watching, and studying sports, the kind of masculinity that I strove for took the form of athletic prowess. That meant a fit, muscular body, pecs, abs, the whole bit. I spent time wondering if I was going to be the kind of guy who shaved his chest hair, an issue that has still not come up, by the way. But masculinity also meant other things, non-physical things. It meant confidence that I didn't have. It meant aggression, competition, and emotional stoicism. If you lost, you better not cry about it kind of thing. Basically, the kind of masculinity that tells you to man up and punches you in the dick for a laugh. Those guys were everywhere growing up. It's been happening for a long time, but in recent years especially, I've pushed back against my attachment to that kind of masculinity. In the people I surround myself with, in the way I dress, in the ways I express myself, I feel good. I feel much more like me. Why then do I place myself back into that framework of masculinity when creating my avatar? It's not about athleticism. Remember, this is a video game. Anatomy, biology, these things don't work the same way in FIFA as they do in the real world. I could look however I wanted and still perform just as well in the game. I don't need to look like Ryan Gosling to be valued in the digital world. Of course, the armchair psychologist answer is that I need to look like Ryan Gosling to be valued by myself. At least, a part of me does. I don't want to look the way I do, so when given the opportunity to make adjustments to fit back into some kind of masculine ideal, I add a beard and 30 pounds. I suspected that this avatar was a way of having part of that masculinity back, even if it was only digital. And it turns out, I wasn't alone there either. Now, I don't mean to say that avatars mean masculinity to everyone, but many people view their avatars as an extension of themselves. 
I spoke about this with an anthropologist named Tom Belsdorf. My name is Tom Belsdorf, and I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Tom conducts his fieldwork in an online multiplayer world called Second Life. Second Life is basically what it sounds like. Users create an avatar, sometimes multiple avatars, and then, well, live. Second Life is an entire digital world consisting of everything from fantastical islands to recreations of whole European cities. And I should say that Tom would want me to stress that Second Life is not a game, per se. He uses this analogy. The Pasadena Rose Bowl is not a game. You play a game in it. You could also have a rock concert or a flea market or, you know, whatever. He even corrected me a few times when I slipped up. Second Life isn't a game, right? It's a virtual world. It's not a game. Right, yeah. This digital world is incredibly complex. So complex that Tom wrote a whole book about it called Coming of Age in Second Life, in which he spoke with and lived alongside residents of Second Life for years. In fact, he's still living there and conducting research. I spoke with Tom on the phone about his time there, the people he's met, and the influence that Second Life has on the people who live there. But before we jump in, let me say quickly that Tom is a very busy man. We had to schedule this phone call more than a month in advance. So if you hear sounds in the background, that's because Tom was bustling around the house taking calls from home that day before he left town the following morning. When I did manage to catch him, I asked him first about the word I. You may have noticed that earlier when describing my in-game avatar, I used the word I. Not he, not it, I. If you're doing something with your avatar and it stands up, um, you know, my av- you know, people will sometimes say I just stood up. Sometimes they say my avatar stood up as well. Um, because an important thing you learn when you do this kind of research is that the entire human race doesn't agree on everything. So it's not true that someone scores a field goal playing FIFA and says, I scored that goal. Some people will say that. Some people will say my avatar score, scored a goal because millions of human beings don't all have the same way of thinking, right? So we want to think about sort of the range of possibilities. But you're absolutely right that some people very much um, will speak in that way. Whether that means they identify with their avatar in various ways, you know, you're not sure from the, the beginning or not. And this led us to the question of identification. If we want to say gamers identify with their avatars, what does that actually mean? Well, of course, it means a lot of different things to different people. People can identify with their avatars in a lot of really interesting, complicated ways. And the original avatars are made out of text, right? They didn't even have to be visual. So like with some of the disabled folks that I'm working with, you know, if there's someone who, you know, is an amputee or is uh, uses a wheelchair, but their their avatar in the virtual world context doesn't, or sometimes they do it with a wheelchair and sometimes they don't, that can have a whole range of meanings for, for different people. Because I think part of the lesson that you learn from the virtual stuff is what the word identify with even means. Like often we tend to think of it as like all or nothing. You identify with something or you don't. And I think what you see from a lot of virtual world stuff is all kinds of really fascinating shades of gray, where someone who is male may have a female avatar, and it's not because they're trans or because they want to, you know, be a different gender. It might just be because they want to check it out. Or there's a feminine side to themselves they want to explore. Or they want to look at a female body when they're gaming. Or, you know, whatever. And so I think one interesting thing you get from looking at all this online stuff where you're talking about sort of avatar use is this really rich diversity of ways that people can engage with the possibility of having multiple bodies that is not just identifying with or not. And another thing to remember about that is in a lot of virtual worlds, you can have more than one avatar look. I mean, I have people like in the disability community and elsewhere in Second Life that I've done research with that will have more than 100 avatars, right? And people often have two or three or four. And so it's not just identifying with an avatar. It's sort of what are the range, right? Some people will have one main avatar. Some will have a couple, you know, some will have one that doesn't even look human. That's a dragon or something. And, like, they're identifying with those different bodies in different ways, right? And these avatars can mean drastically different things depending on who's using them. There's people who will be kids in Second Life um, because they were abused as children and they feel like they never had a chance to have a childhood. And it means a lot for them to be a kid in Second Life. Um, and then there's people who are kids in Second Life because 
the clothing designers who design the clothes. It's just the best clothes. There are some people, Tom writes about, who say that their Second Life avatar feels, quote, more real or more them than their physical self. For instance, um, a lot of folks on who have autism um, will sometimes talk like that because a lot of folks with autism um, have trouble reading facial expressions. And they also sometimes they have uh, difficulty speaking or a lot of fear in speaking. And so they love the fact that there's no facial expressions that you have to read in Second Life because it's all animated. So you, you don't have to be worried that someone's angry and you can't tell because you can't read the facial expressions. And they also really like it that you, a lot of people, most of the time, you can communicate in ch text chat in Second Life because they find that less scary than um, having to speak. And so, like, some folks on the autism spectrum feel like they can be themselves more in that online space because of the not having to read facial expressions, being able to take their time to figure out what they're going to say in text and not have to, to use their voices. And so they sometimes I've had some folks um, with autism say, I feel like this is more real, it's more authentically me, you know, that kind of thing for that, that reason. Tom has also been doing a lot of work recently with residents of Second Life who have disabilities in the physical world. I know several disabled people that I'm working with in my research who um, cannot travel anymore because of their disability, and they love going to parts of Second Life that are modeled after Italy or Ireland or Germany, and they they say, you know, I get to try, you know, I know this isn't the same thing as flying there, but it's, it's my only option, and, and it's sort of nice. There's people in Second Life in their 70s, 80s, 90s who appear like, you know, they're 25 years old or 20 years old in Second Life, and they really love not getting prejudged by their age immediately and, and just getting away from that ageism that they encounter. And they often will say, this feels like the real me. Like, I feel like I'm still 25. I'm still who I was back then. And I know that I'm 80 or 90. I'm not denying it, but I really like it when people, you know, don't just immediately dismiss me or walk past me because I've got a lot of wrinkles, you know, and, and not, not treat me like an equal. There's various ways in which sometimes people could feel that interactions have a kind of reality um, for them that is, is more real than in the physical world, or just a different kind. It's not necessarily quantitative. It could be qualitative, right? A different kind of realness to it. And this fluidity of identification is able to happen because of a kind of radical concept although he wouldn't describe it that way. Tom, when talking about Second Life, does not make a distinction between the real world and the virtual world. In my writing, I never talk about real world, right? An online world, even if people talking quickly will talk about that in a game or in Second Life, because it really misses what's going on. A lot of digital things are real. If you study German online, you can go to Berlin and speak that. The whole idea of online education would make no sense. If you make a friend online, that friendship is real. If you lose money online, that, that is real money that you have lost. This is a little miniature voice-only virtual world that we have for 30 minutes talking right now. And it will influence both of us. It will, it will influence you in terms of what you write and think. You know, And this is an audio-only short lifespan virtual world that we created via Skype. So things can be digital and real. But what is just as wrong and, and, and just silly with that real versus online thing is that not everything physical is real. That's why we have Halloween. That's why we have plays and acting and things like that is because not everything physical is real. So a danger of talking about online versus real world is you assume that things like online games or Second Life are not real, and that's obviously incorrect, but it's also wrong because it's assuming that everything, just because it's physical, is real. And philosophers since Plato have been beating it into our heads that that's not true. Not everything physical is real, depending on your definition of real, of course, and there's huge debates about that, but it's easy to think of examples of things that are physical, but not real in the usual sense that we mean them. You just can't even begin having an intelligent conversation about things that are online if you assume that online versus real framework. Byron Reeves is a Stanford professor who co-wrote a book about this. And he wrote that, quote, people feel bad when something bad happens to their avatar, and they feel quite good when something good happens, end quote. 
Of course, if their avatar is killed in a video game, the gamer doesn't die in real life, this isn't the Matrix, but there is a psychological correspondence between the two worlds. Nick Yee, another Stanford scholar who studied gamers, discovered that nearly a quarter of his subjects said that the highlight of their week had actually happened to their avatar. The fluidity between the digital world and the real world doesn't end with online multiplayer games or digital worlds like Second Life, however. Let's go back to FIFA. It's not just teenagers and has-beens like me who play it. It's professional soccer players, too. In fact, the game is so important to some professional players that they've complained publicly that their ratings in the game were too low. Miles Jacobson, the creator of a game called Football Manager, says that he often fields similar complaints from players and their agents. We might expect this to some extent, but while we understand pretty clearly how reality can inform the game, sometimes, amazingly, it's the other way around. In a New York Times article last year, Bayern Munich defender Mats Hummels suggested that, quote, maybe some people use what they learn in FIFA when they find themselves on a pitch, end quote. And he's right. Arsenal winger Alex Iwobi says that when preparing for a match, if he was paired against an opponent he'd never faced before, he'd, quote, look at his name and then try to remember how good he was in FIFA, end quote. There's more. Iwobi would actually practice moves in real life that he'd seen digital players use in the game. He studied the virtual version of Irish winger Aidan McGeady. Quote, he had one turn that I would go out into the garden and practice, end quote. And Iwobi isn't the only one. Lots of players have been saying things like this in recent years. Manchester United striker Zlatan Ibrahimovic said that he would, quote, often spot solutions in the game that he then parlayed into real life, end quote. Even managers are being influenced by video games. Andrea Pirlo describes the tactics of manager Pep Guardiola as, quote, virtual reality mixed with real life, a swim between the shores of fantasy and reality. In other words, we're talking PlayStation. When it comes to character creators, though, this kind of fluidity can get a little more viscous particularly when creation engines fail the gamers they're trying to include. They do this all the time, either because of gaps in technology or because of cultural biases on the part of their designers. I spoke with Ahmed Ali Akbar, a BuzzFeed writer and podcaster who recently wrote about his experiences with character creators. What I would notice, what I would make my family is, you know, I'm Pakistani background, and the people in my family, we don't necessarily look like what you might expect a typical uh, Pakistani person to look like, and that was really missing in the character creators that like basically everyone was like maybe four or five different white white faces or models or whatever or maybe they were like for a lot of times what will happen is you'll have like it'll be like if you're choosing between like presets for instance it'll be like white 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 dark like olive skinned black <laughs> you know there's like one olive skinned character that's like supposed to represent like Asians and Mediterraneans and Latinos and it just doesn't really work and for Ahmed this began early like the first character I remember seeing and being like am I supposed to relate to this was Dalsim from Street Fighter 2 and I remember I was like f five years old I was like asking my mom I was like is Dalsim a real Indian or Pakistani name and she was like no it's not also why does he have children's skulls around his neck I also spoke with Evan Narciss a game critic and comic writer who said that Street Fighter was one of the first times he noticed a difference in representations of people of color too you'd go down the roster of a fighting game like say Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat and the black characters would always play to these stereotypes they were big, loud, strong, not particularly smart. But for Evan, it was actually the lack of representation he saw in games that struck him even more. It's, it's kind of a, the negative space phenomenon, right? Where like, you notice the shape of something by how it isn't portrayed, right? There's a story in comic books about how various artists learn how to draw Superman's insignia, a kind of stylized S within the Pentagon. And if you look at it a certain way, it looks like two fish swimming past each other. And that that's an easier way to draw it because you're not focusing on making like the, the cursive lines of the S. And it was the same way with me for video games, where I was like, it was more like the lack 
of representation made me think about why that was happening. For Ahmed, it was slightly different. For many people of color and underrepresented groups in the media, you don't actually realize what you're missing until you see something that looks like you and really feels like you, and you get that feeling of comfort that you had been denied for so long. I understand my disappointment better when I find myself reflected and I realize that, like, I'm understanding jokes that other people would not understand about this, you know, Pakistani or Muslim character. I guess you just don't know what you're missing until you, 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 you see it for the first time. And that's where character creators could be such a useful tool. You know, like not seeing myself reflected, I would be really excited to make myself and then get frustrated that the options were so much more limited for me than they were for for other races. Evan says something similar. It's damn near the first thing you do, right? You know, you, you create your avatar, you create your character, and you're going to set them off on, on this big adventure. For me, the frustration has had a deflating effect, right? If I can't get the character to look the way I want, ugh, I'm not into this. I'm going to have to stare at this guy's face for 60 hours and I want it to look like my face, and it doesn't. And even though character creators are often inadequate, Ahmed uses them anyway. I always make myself. I literally always try to make myself. And even if I fail, I'm like, well, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to see myself as the hero in a game otherwise. Certainly not a Pakistani Muslim person. Usually we're the villains. I'm not going to see myself as the hero in a game otherwise. Usually we're the villains. That's a big problem, because people of color are playing more games than anyone. In fact, the people playing the most video games in the country are black. Evan wrote an entire article last year called The Natural about why on earth it is that in spite of all that data, and in spite of the arsenal of technological wizardry that we have available to us, character creators still cannot seem to get black hair right. But Evan makes it clear that it's about much more than just hair. Character creation is not just about the hair, right? It's, you know, the way eyes or nose or lips look, you know, it's the way skin tones look. I remember I was creating my guardian in um, Destiny, and I, I got what I thought was like the approximately correct shade of brown, but it wasn't working. It, there was this weird orange undertone underneath the skin. I felt like that's just weird. I know this is science fiction, but like all the more reason to make me think that you guys can get it right. Ahmed has noticed some improvements over the years. It has been easier over the years. I don't want to like oversell it. Like I think in recent character creator engines, it's been a lot easier for me. But when he had the rest of the BuzzFeed staff try to create themselves in Fallout 4, he noticed that it wasn't so easy for everyone else. And it was fascinating to see um, the women of color, um, you know, black and Latina women, try to make themselves. And just their hairstyle wasn't even there. Like, not even close. There was no curly hair options whatsoever. Um, and whereas I could pretty much make myself. You know what I mean? Like, they've improved to that point where I could make myself. And there's still, like, huge swaths of people whose, like, hair texture, hairstyle, skin color is... Uh, not considered like worthy of including in the initial pack of character creating options. Evan had a moment too that at first actually seemed really promising. I had an experience with a, a big AAA game that got released recently where people working on the game reached out to me on Twitter DM and said, I love your work. We're concerned about getting this right. Even went so far as to let me look at some of what the work in progress was. And I gave my feedback. I was like, oh, okay, this, you know, for free, um, I was like, hey, this texture could be different. Here's a thing you can look at to kind of realize what the options are. And I realized it'd be hard to mechanically uh, to make, but like, you know, this is, this is why you came to me. Game ships, game comes out, I get it. And I was more excited than ever. I was like, hey, they reached out to me. They care. Let's see what they did. And I get in that character creator and I cycle through the hair options. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And it was particularly frustrating because um, there was a character of color in the game uh, who had hair texture that I wanted on my guy. But the authored storyline character had better hair than mine. And I was like, well, damn it, they could do it for him, but not for me. And again, that just adds insult to injury. And this insult to injury is precisely the trouble with some character creators. They could be incredibly meaningful, giving underrepresented gamers a chance to see themselves on screen. But when they don't, when they fail at this, 
they become exactly the thing that they claim to work against. It's always good to see yourself reflected in a creative medium. One thing, one thing I've, I've said for years now is like, it, it, it doesn't change a damn thing about Uncharted if Nathan Drake was black. It doesn't change a thing about Halo if Master Chief is black under the hood. You still got to save the universe. You still got to find a treasure. You still have to do whatever heroic deeds that need doing. And that doesn't change if the person's skin color or sexual orientation or gender identification is different than, than being straight or white or male. Now, for me, it's different. I am straight and white and male. I see people like me in games all the time. The modifications that I make in character creators are by choice, not by necessity. Stories like Evans and Ahmed's put my experience in perspective. And there are stories like this from all over the gaming community. Stories where character creators fail the very gamers they could be serving. And we'll hear many of those stories in upcoming episodes. But before we do, before I shove off into this vast sea of gaming to hear from people all over the digital and physical worlds about their first and second lives, there's still one question I haven't quite answered. The question that led me to Daphne Bavlier and Tom and Ahmed and Evan. Why do I bulk myself up just to kick a pixel ball around in FIFA? And why do I care if my partner sees that? Okay, I should say first that I don't always play as a 180-pound bearded alpha male. It depends on the game. Actually, in fantasy games like Skyrim or Dragon Age Inquisition, I don't even play as a human. In Dragon Age, for example, I play as an elf. I've always liked elves in fantasy worlds. They walk on snow, they sleep in crystal tree houses, they live for hundreds of years, they're cool. But I think it's more than that. I think it's at least in part because they look a little bit like me. As an elf, I'm allowed to be tall and frail. That's how male elves are supposed to look. There's no macho Ryan elfling to compare myself to. When I made my elf self, my partner, unprompted, told me that he looked like me, something she's never said about my soccer self. And she's right. The elves in Skyrim and Dragon Age inhabit worlds in which my body type happens to be ideal for their species, so I don't feel the need to idealize my body when creating a character. It's already there. And I feel that. It's exciting. I can be more, well, me. But my soccer self isn't any less me. He's just a different part of me. I'm 30 years old. I'm older than most of the real athletes I'm controlling in the game. If I were actually out on that pitch, that real pitch, the commentators would be wondering when I'd retire. FIFA allows me to access a part of me that I can't access physically. For me, FIFA is a way to separate the parts I loved about sports from the parts I hated. There's no practice, there's no competitive, macho, hyper-masculine bullshit, but it's also a way to give myself the kind of body I've always wanted, not just aesthetically, but physically. Why do I create a 180-pound version of myself that can play off the shoulder of the last defender, beat fullbacks down the line, and hit screamers from 30 yards out? Because it feels good. It feels good to have a body that can juke midfielders and chip keepers and hit bicycle kicks into the top corner. When I turned to my partner on the couch, I wanted validation for that athletic part of me that used to exist, and in many ways, still does even if it is only digitally. I don't need her validation for games like Dragon Age because she already validates those parts of me, the elvish parts. Of course, this doesn't actually have anything to do with my partner, really. I want that external validation because it's really difficult for me to validate myself. It feels strange to want back something that I made a choice a long time ago to leave behind. But I do want it and FIFA can give it to me, no strings attached. Just like the millions of people who live their first life in second life, the me that I live out in FIFA isn't a different me, really. It's just another part of me, a part of me that I don't get to live anywhere else. 
Now, I don't feel like digital Manchester United striker Brian Fabry Dorsum is more me than physical me, but physical me is more me because of him. And by the way, I am leading the Premier League in goals and assists this season. Are you proud of me? This month was just the beginning. You heard a lot of me this episode, but that will not always be the case, I promise. There are a thousand more stories to tell from all across the gaming community, and Character Creator will give us space for those stories as we try to figure out what it is we love and hate about video games. If you want to check up on any of the articles, books, or audio clips included in this episode, visit our website charactercreatorpodcast.com for a full list of sources. This show is produced by me, with music by Names for Sounds. You can find more really good music at namesforsounds.bandcamp.com. I want to thank Sam Perry, Beth Nugent, Sean Smith, Mary Cross, and everyone else who saw early drafts of this episode. I also want to thank Tom Belsdorf. I'm finishing up a research project on disability in virtual worlds, and we're actually doing a documentary that's going to be really awesome that will be coming out probably next February, but I don't even know the title of it yet because we're still doing the filming. Ahmed Ali Akbar. So I have this podcast, See Something, Say Something, and you can find that wherever podcasts are found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and I also write for BuzzFeed.com. You can find my writing at BuzzFeed.com slash Ahmed Ali Akbar. I'm probably most active on Twitter, so you can follow me at RadBrownDads. I tweet a lot about video games, and most people follow me for like my Muslim and South Asian commentary, but there's a lot of video game commentary, so you might you might get some if you follow me. And Evan Narciss. I currently write for io9, where I'm a senior staff writer. I've written for Kotaku, The Atlantic, a bunch of other places. Evan is also writing the new series Rise of the Black Panther for Marvel Comics. And as always, I want to thank my enormous cat Jimmy for not yelling during recording. Thanks, Jimmy. Character Creator is supported in part by no one nobody's helping me with this it's just me out here so if you like the show and you want to help make it happen i'm launching a character creator patreon page in just a few days once that's up you'll be able to kick in a few bucks a month to make sure that this podcast keeps coming there will be some cool rewards too so go check it out you'll be able to find it at www.patreon.com character creator podcast for now keep up with us on facebook instagram and twitter Next month on Character Creator. Came full circle. I got out of the military, thankfully. Got my benefits. Everything was fine. And then I started to try to find ways to adjust. And one of the things I remembered from when I was deployed was playing Xbox and how fun that was. I still play Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 on my PlayStation 3 because it's relaxing. It's calming. And I can take myself in a safe way, in a safe place back to what it feels like to smell blood and gun smoke and and then hit the X button and get back out of it if I want to. <laughs>